Well, who here has ever been in a bind before? Oh, just one, one or two? <laughs> Probably just about everybody, as I'm guessing. Maybe your uh, paycheck ran out before all the bills were paid, or maybe you had an accident or an illness or something like that that turned your life upside down. Many of us have lost a loved one, and uh, that changed our lives. Maybe you're struggling with something even now that you're just afraid to talk about because it's kind of difficult or embarrassing, and so people have no idea the stress you're under, but you're feeling the pressure. And sometimes it seems like troubles come in waves, like it's just one on top of the other, and they keep crashing down. We get hit with one wave only to look and see another one crashing towards us, and and you don't know which way to go because you're stuck in the midst of the storm, and it just, just won't let up, and you're not sure what to do. How's the saying go? You're stuck between a rock and a what? And a hard place. Yeah. And, and life can really be rough at times. And a lot of people will start wondering, where is God in all this mess? Why isn't He taking care of my problems? Why is He allowing so much bad stuff to happen in my life or to the people that I care about? How many times do you think Job asked that same question? Why me, God? What have I done to make you angry? What's going on? And the Hebrews coming out of slavery asked that a lot. Remember when they, when they were in Egypt and they were slaves for 400 years? And they, I mean, they'd gone to Egypt on friendly terms, but then a new Pharaoh came and they started multiplying. And so the, the Egyptians got worried. They're like, these people are going to take over if we don't keep them under control. So they enslaved them all. And 400 years, they're all working their fingers to the bone and doing whatever they're supposed to be doing without pay. And then it gets to the point where they, they're still multiplying and they're still growing. And so the Pharaoh decides, let's stop this. Let's kill them all. So he starts killing all the boys. He says, anytime a woman has a boy, you kill it. And it was genocide, basically. And anybody who was still alive, he was grinding into the dirt with, with the work. And so God raised up Moses, right? And he says, Moses, I'm going to send you back to your... Moses had escaped... Um, from getting in trouble for murder and he lived out in the desert as a shepherd for a long time and he, so he saw the burning bush and God spoke to him and said I'm going to send you back and you're going to rescue my people you're going to be my, my uh, mouthpiece and, and you'll do what I tell you to do and so Moses reluctantly goes and talks to Pharaoh on God's behalf he's the prophet for, for God and basically God gives Pharaoh ten chances, ten opportunities to let his people go. And he knows he's not going to do it, and he tells Moses ahead of time, he's going to be stubborn and hard-hearted, and he's not going to let him go, so I'm going to display my glory to the world. And so he's, he gives him ten chances with ten different plagues, and plague after plague. And Pharaoh, his heart just won't be changed. And even when things get really rough, you know, and some of there's like three different plagues where he says, okay, I'll let your people go. And then before they leave, he says, no, I changed my mind. You're not going. So he's so stubborn, and he just he lets his nation be completely destroyed, basically, because his heart is, his heart is so hard. He won't let him go, but he keeps on you know either saying no or changing his mind. And so Moses announces the final plague, the tenth plague, which is the the death of the firstborn. And God prepares all his people. He says, "Listen, you want you, I want you to to get ready because you're going to be leaving tonight. So put on your clothes. Don't you know dress." At nighttime, you know, you're going to have your evening meal, and I want you to be ready. Your bag's packed, your stick in your hand, your coat, clothes on, everything that you're ready to walk out the door and go. 
And for your meal, I want you to take a lamb and, and kill it like you would normally do. But instead of just draining the blood and, and getting rid of it, I want you to collect the blood from the lamb and take a, brash, uh, a hyssop branch and use the, like a brush and I want you to paint it on your doorposts so that there's blood on the outside of your door. And then when, the, when I come around with the plague and all the firstborn are killed, anybody whose house, whose door is marked with the blood, their house will be passed over and their firstborn will survive. So if you follow these instructions, you'll be okay and you'll be ready to go. But anybody who doesn't have that blood on their doorpost, they're going to lose their firstborn. And it happened that night. The, the, the plague came and everybody who's, just like God had said, everybody who had not done what he had said, they lost their firstborn, animals and people. And, and so there were a lot of people who died. And it was almost like the reverse of the, the genocide. Of Pharaoh was trying to kill off all the Jews and now all the Egyptians had lost their firstborn. And all the people who had followed God's instructions, the, the Israelites who had believed in God, they painted that blood on the doorposts and their houses were passed over, which is why we have the, they have the holiday, the Passover. And so Pharaoh finally lets them go. He, he, it's just that this is the, the straw that broke him. And he says, all right, get out of here. I don't, and so they, the Jews all, they run away in the desert. They're all packed and ready to go, like God said. So they, they take all their stuff and they, they leave. And they get out in the desert and they're, they're not quite sure where they're going, but Moses is kind of just taking them out and they get themselves up against the Red Sea. And so Pharaoh, meanwhile, rehardens his heart again and decides to chase after him again. He says, no, I've, I've changed my mind. I'm still not going to let him go. Even after his nation has been destroyed, his people are, are dying, and he says, I'm going to go after him. And so the Israelites wind up stuck between a rock and a hard place. Well, technically, it's between an army and a wet place because they've got the Red Sea and the Egyptian army who are, are both threats to them. And this is the, a, a clip of the story. This is Exodus 14, uh, verse 8. And it says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the Israelites. And now the Israelites were going out defiantly. The Egyptians chased after them, and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army overtook them, camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh got closer, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the desert? So they're thinking, God, what's going on? Why, why have you let Moses lead us out here? I mean, we went through all this trouble and we're finally free only to just die out here in the desert. We're stuck by the Red Sea and the army is marching down on us. And they say, what in the world have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Which is interesting because they've been freed from slavery. You'd think that would be nice, but they're now complaining about it because they're wondering what's, why, the, why they're stuck. And it says in verse 12, isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians because it's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Which is a weird, well, I don't know how people think these days, but in my mind, it's kind of a, a, an opposite of the American way of thinking, at least in the origin of America, because you know, our attitude historically was live free or die. We'd rather die than to be slaves. And here the, it, the um, 
Israelites are saying, we'd rather be slaves than die. And so Moses tells the people in verse 13, do not fear, stand firm and see the salvation that the Lord, that he will provide for you today. For the Egyptians that see you today, that you see today, you will never ever see again. The Lord will fight for you and you can be still. And then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. So it's funny. Moses, he kind of contradicts Moses. And Moses says, don't worry, just stand here and watch what God can do. And God says, what are you talking to me for? Get moving. And so he says, tell the Israelites to move on. And as for you, lift up your staff and extend your hand toward the sea and divide it so that the Israelites may go through in the middle of the sea on dry ground. And as for me, I am going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will come after them that I may be honored because of Pharaoh and his army and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gained my honor because of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The angel of God who was going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and a pillar of cloud moved out before them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian camp and the Israelite camp. It was a dark cloud, and it lit up the night so that the camp did not come near the other near the other the whole night. And Moses stretched out his hand toward the sea, and the Lord drove the sea apart by a strong east wind all that night, and he made the sea into dry land. And the water was divided, so the Israelites went through the middle of the sea on dry ground, the water forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. So it's an amazing scene. They're stuck by the sea, but they can't go across, and the Israel, the Egyptian army is marching, is coming down on them with their horses and chariots ready to kill them all. And so God s- says, you get moving and hold up your staff and I'm going to divide the sea. And then he comes around them and, and puts this barrier of, of cloud, this Holy Spirit God barrier that, they, that the Egyptians can't cross and kind of protects them through the night as he parts the sea. And then when it's bright enough that they can see what's going on, here the, the ocean has been parted and there's a wall of water going up on either side, and the ground below them has been dried, and so they can walk across. Which is, it's mind-blowing, and it's an amazing story, and it's probably one of the best-known Bible stories of, of all time. And, and the scene, it's just extraordinary. It's wild. It's amazing that there's these walls of water. And I've always wondered, you know, what did that look like? Like, was it an aquarium where you could see the fish and the plants and whatever was in the ocean, the sharks and whales, or who knows what they saw. I don't know, but it must have been amazing to see these walls of water and the dry ground where there once was just an ocean, and now they can go through. And, and so they do that. They start moving, and they start taking all their stuff and their people and animals, and they're passing through. And, and God, I guess, kind of lets up his clouds because the Egyptian army decides... They're going to chase after them. Through the, they're so embroiled that they said, let's go get them. And they're probably amazed too. What in the world is going on? Which is, it's wild to me because they've seen all these plagues happen in Egypt. All this stuff that God has brought on them. And you'd think they would, they would say, you know what? This God is too much for us. I'm going to, let's let him go. I mean, the water is parted. But Pharaoh's probably saying, you go or I'll have you all killed. And so they're, they, they chase after them. And so 
God lets them get stuck in the mud, the Bible tells us. They get their chariots and their horses in there, and all of a sudden the, the ground is starting to get damp again, and so they're all getting stuck and can't move, and then he lets the walls go. And it comes crashing in, and the whole army is drowned. The horses and the chariots and everything is destroyed. And all the Hebrews who thought last night that they were going to die and that Moses had just led them into more trouble out in the desert, now they're on the other side of the sea celebrating their rescue and writing songs about that God helped them survive and, and not die. And this story is celebrated every year. The Passover story, this, this exodus from Egypt, this escape from their slavery, and they've been celebrating it every year for more than 3,000 years now. It's, the, it's one of the oldest religious holidays that's still celebrated in the world. And, and they, they remember every single year they go back and they retell this story. So if you're a Jew, you grow up. This is, part of your, this is who you are as a Jewish, if you're religious at all, you, this is part of who you are. This is part of your culture. And you remember that. And, and this part of the story is it's the, the salvation of God who tames the sea, who, who, can, who has power over the waters to command them and do what He tells them to do. Because the waters of the sea were just as deadly to the people who, who couldn't go across them as the advancing army. There was, they couldn't go through either one. But God delivers His people through the waters. And so this is part of their story. And, and this story is as important to Judaism as the death and resurrection is to Christianity. This was what makes Christianity is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so what makes Judaism is that escape from Egypt, that rescue from God, from their slavery and through the, the, the Dead Sea and, and being able to be their own people and come to Israel. And oddly enough, we both celebrate them in the springtime. And next month we're going to be celebrating. And they're both based on the, on the lunar cycle and the, the spring equinox. That you know, they, They're connected. It's hard to, to disconnect the resurrection and the, and the Passover, because Jesus' death and resurrection was right around their, the Passover celebration. And so this foundational story of the Jews, of God taming the waters, affects how they look at the world and, and how the Scriptures were written. Every, every, all the, the prophets and the psalm writers, when they, when they tried to explain the problems that they faced, what kind of ideas did they use to describe their experiences? Well, they used what God had done in their lives as a people, as a culture. And, uh, and you can find it all through the Psalms and, and the prophets. If you read the, the poetry and the songs they wrote, here's just one example. Psalm 69 uh, starts out, Deliver me, O God, for the water has reached my neck, and I sink into the deep mire where there's no solid ground. I'm in deep water, and the current overpowers me. I'm exhausted from shouting for help. My throat is sore. My eyes grow tired of looking for my God. And over and over again, you see this idea of, of waters as difficulty. That, that they, the Bible writers use the idea of dangerous waters to describe their troubles and their fears. Because in context, the guy is not literally talking about drowning. He's talking about people are trying to... They hate him. And, and he's up against his enemies. And... and we understand the analogy. We talk about the same kind of thing. When somebody says, I, I feel like I'm drowning and there's no water anywhere close, we know what they mean emotionally. That I, I feel overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm caught up in all these problems and I just I'm, I feel like I'm drowning here. And, and we know what they're talking about when they say that. And when they wanted to talk about the people in the Bible and they wanted to talk about how great 
and how powerful God was and, and that, he's a, that He saves you. So many times they, they use that same analogy of God powering the waters. In Psalm 89, verse 8, it says, O oh Lord, sovereign God, who is strong like You, O Lord? Your faithfulness surrounds You. You rule over the proud sea. And when its waves surge, You calm them. And we see that theme a lot. That when God comes to rescue, He, he overpowers the troubled waters. And, and I know we're pretty far from any oceans here in the Midwest. But if you've ever gone to visit the ocean, you can understand this sentiment. If you've ever watched, you know, stood under rocks and watched the waves crash up against the shore, or maybe you've ever been on a boat at sea and you understand, you just, you know, you're, you're out there in this little craft and you see everything around you. It's just, it's power. And, or, or maybe I've watched videos of, of ships and storms at sea. And the, the ocean can turn the biggest ship into a toy boat and a bathtub. And he, you know, throws the things that weigh hundreds and thousands of tons and it throws them around or up and down in the waves and crashing. And, and which is why the, the ocean floor is littered with sunken ships all through history, you know, both in old days and, and modern days. The ships still sink from, from trouble at sea. And when you, when you watch the waves in the ocean, Smash against rocks or video, you know, up against lighthouses and things like that. It, it just it, it's kind of helps you to understand just how small and powerless you are compared to the power of nature and, and things like that. So, but the God of creation rules over that. He rules over the sea, and and we're told in Psalms that God marks the boundaries of the oceans that they can't get past where He doesn't want them to get past, and and He has the power to tame it and to control the waters and we see this idea repeated through scripture even in the new testament which leads us back to matthew who uses this same kind of language that we read in the psalms and the prophets to evoke a certain understanding in his readers and we've been going through matthew 8 and remember we went through the sermon on the mount with jesus and he taught us all uh, taught his followers how we are supposed to live in the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God has arrived and this is how my followers live. This is the kind of people that you're supposed to be. And when he was done teaching that sermon, he walked down the mountain and we watched him actually put his words into action. What he was teaching, he lived it out. And he led by example. And he, he served those who were, who were weak. And he healed people who were broken. And, and he loved his enemies. And he, he took care of, the, of sick people and the outcasts and things like that. And of course, the crowds have been following him nonstop because they've been watching his miracles and listening to his, his, his authoritative teaching. And people are all over him and they're looking for healing and they're asking questions and they're listening to the, the teaching. And, and Jesus is probably in serious need of a break. I don't know how many days this has been going on, but you know, when, you, when you've got people who want something from you, it can be kind of wearing. And so, you know how a mom might try to go find 30 seconds of peace in the bathroom. Meanwhile, the kids are knocking on the door. Mom, where's the fire extinguisher? And so Jesus has got to be feeling this pressure and He decides, you know what, I, I need a break. I'm going to get into a boat and, and get away from the shore just so I can have a breath for a minute. And in Matthew 8.23, that's what He says. He got into a boat and his disciples followed him. So, it's, this is, he's at the Sea of Galilee, and it's really a lake. 
Um, it's, it's tucked between a couple of mountain ranges, at, at least as far as you consider mountains in Israel. Or, or in the Midwest, they'd be mountains to us. They're about 1,500 feet high on either side. It's definitely not like the, the Appalachians or the Rockies. But, but the, the sea is kind of tucked in between. You know, the, the mountains come down and to the seashore and then this, this, this big lake. And it's about seven or eight miles wide from east to west and about 13, not quite 13 miles long from north to south. So it's a good-sized body of water. So on an average day, they could probably, you know, in a sailboat, probably take two or three hours to get across it without, you know, without much problem. But due east of Israel, what is there? We call it the Middle East. What kind of climate is there if you go east of Israel? Desert. Yeah, it's all dry, hot, arid desert. But then west of Israel, they're up against the shore of what? The Mediterranean Sea. So you've got a you know, nice, humid, cool climate and on one side, and you've got a dry, hot, arid climate on the other. And if the wind is just going one direction, you've got you know, usually clear weather. But when those winds start to shift and those two different climates meet, so you've got hot, dry air and cool, humid air, what's going to happen? you're going to get a storm. And that can turn up pretty quickly. If the winds shift, you can start the day off, you know, a nice clear day, let's go for a sail. And then all of a sudden the winds shift and these two climates meet and you've got an instant storm. You know, the winds come over these hills and meet in this valley over over the, the sea of Galilee and you've got trouble if you're out there on the water. And so what do you think happens when Jesus gets out on the boat of course, wouldn't you know it, he just needs a break, a breather, a time to, to recoup before he you know, helps these people again. And so just when he wants to relax, a big storm blows in. He's out on the, in the water with his, his uh, disciples. And verse 24 says, a great storm developed on the sea so that the waves began to swamp the boat. But he was asleep. So Jesus is so tired and so worn out that not even the wind and the waves can wake him up. Here's this storm and the waves are crashing over the side and Jesus has got his head on the pillow in the back and he's just he's out cold. And it's my guess that he's, he's been sleep deprived for days. Who knows how long he's been serving these people and taking care of them and not a chance to really rest or get away or relax and he's just so worn out from, from serving and teaching and the interaction with the crowds and the people following him everywhere he goes that he's just at the back of the boat, which is probably about 20, 30 feet long. So it's a good-sized craft, and he's just dead to the world. And meanwhile, the disciples are freaking out because the water is coming over the sides of the boat. I mean, they've got a serious wind and wave problem here. And in verse 25, it says, So they they came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're about to die. Which is, you know, makes sense. And it's good that they went to Jesus because he's probably a good guy to, to take this problem to. And how does Jesus respond? He decides, he's, you know, he's just been woken up from his sleep and he sees the storm and he decides to turn this life-threatening situation into an object lesson. And in verse 26, but he said to them, why are you cowardly, you people of little faith? And you have to remember that a good part of the disciples are professional sailors. They're fishermen, and they've been out on this lake every day of their lives fishing. And, and they know what it's like when, you're, when the storm comes up. And so, it, you know, 
if there's, they're not going to get all that worked up over a minor squall. You know, if there's rain and wind and it's, you know, they understand this is not so big deal. We can handle this. We'll just sail, get back to shore. So the, so they're in a, they're worried enough that they're going to die. That these professional sailors know that this is a life-threatening situation. We're not going to make it. And so picture the wind is blowing and the rain is coming down and the waves are crashing over the side and they're having this conversation. And so they go back and they wake up Jesus. Jesus! We're all going to die! Save us! And the waves are coming over and Jesus is saying, why are you so afraid? Don't you have any faith? And the water's coming over and it's, it's ridiculous. You wonder, what in the world? Why is Jesus trying to give them a lesson here and chastising them for their faith? You can see the water coming over the sides of the boat. Jesus, we're going to die. He says, just, why are you so afraid? And, so, and it seems kind of crazy. And I'm sure if, if, if I was in their place or if you were in the place, we'd be just as scared and, and act in the same way. But at the same time, these guys have been following Jesus in all this miracle stuff that he's been doing. He's been healing the sick and, and, and you know, cleansing the lepers and taking care of people. And miracle after miracle, they've seen this man do it. Which is probably why they go to talk to him when the waves are crashing over. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus, remember, he praised the Roman centurion. Well, we studied a couple of weeks ago, but I don't know how long it was for them. But he had praised the Roman centurion for having enough faith that he said, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. I know if you give the word, my servant will be healed. And you'll, it'll just happen. You have this power. And I don't understand it, but I know you can do it. And I trust you can do it. And Jesus said, man, I haven't seen this faith in all of Israel. So they, they've, they've got the lessons. Jesus kind of pounded it in their heads. Have faith. I can take care of you. And... So you can start to understand why Jesus might be a little disappointed in their lack of faith. After everything they've seen Him do, why do you have so little faith that we're going to be okay? Even in the midst of the storm. And so in verse 26, it says, then He got up, and Matthew says, He got up and He rebuked the winds and the sea. Which is, it sounds like the Psalms. He, Jesus rebuked the winds and he told the sea what to do. And all of a sudden, it was dead calm. The wind stopped, the rain stopped, and the sea settled, and all the waves disappeared, and they were just floating on glass because of what Jesus said. He got up, and it doesn't say exactly what words he used, but, but Matthew purposely puts it into this like poetic form. He rebuked the winds and the sea, and it was peace because of what Jesus said. And, it, and, he, and I think he purposely points us back to the memory of the Exodus. I think he uses the way he writes this on purpose and doesn't you know, quote Jesus. He, he writes it the way he does because he wants us to remember the Exodus story and the crossing of the Red Sea. And remember, Matthew lived this. He was there. He was in the boat. So he's remembering how this happened. And he chose to connect his story, Matthew's story in the boat, with the Exodus story. Why? Well, in verse 27, it says, And the men were amazed and said, What sort of person is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. These guys were in shock and awe. In spite of all the miracles that they'd seen Him do before, now this is real. Not just because the storm had stopped, but because they understood the significance of what Jesus had done. Remember, they were Jewish. They grew up 
with, with the Exodus story, celebrating the Passover of their people and this escape from Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea. And they had heard the Psalms. They'd gone to the synagogues and they'd probably sung along. And, and they knew the poetry of, of you know, when your troubled waters come over you and then God rescues you and He commands them. And, and there was only one answer to their question of who this man, what kind of person this was. Because who the Psalms and prophets tell us who alone can rule over the proud sea and calm the surging waves. There's only one guy who can do that. And that's God. So their minds were blown. Because only God can command the winds and the sea. The man who had been with, they've been following him around for who knows how long now. And he's been teaching the crowds and they've been with him as he served the poor and, and helping the broken and, and they and went around and found them in their various jobs and called them to follow him. Come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And, and now they're, it's like they're, they're, the wool has been pulled off their eyes and, and they're realizing this isn't just a prophet. This isn't just some miracle worker we've been following around. He's God in the flesh. And they don't know how does that work? I don't know if you guys remember the old movie Hook with Robin Williams. And he goes and you know, his kids get kidnapped by Captain Hook, and he goes and he's he's a lawyer, and he goes through this transformation realizing that he's actually turns out he's Peter Pan and he grew up and, and joined the adult world. And he has to he has to kind of reassume his identity of Peter Pan to rescue his kids again. And so he does and goes through this process of transformation and, he, and he's Peter Pan. He goes to rescue his kids and his kids, his daughter sees him you know, as, after he's transformed and she says, my dad is Peter Pan? Like this man I've grown up with all my life, he's Peter Pan? And that's what the disciples are going through. This guy I've been following all this time, he's, who is he? What kind of man is he, they ask. And Matthew just leaves the question unanswered. He doesn't tell us. He leaves them whirling around in their heads and they get across the lake and it says, when he, verse 28, when he came to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men coming from the tombs met him. And they were extremely violent so that no one was able to pass by that way. And they cried out, Son of God, leave us alone. Have you come here to torment us before the time? And what do the demons call him? The Son of God. And this is probably the first time that the disciples have heard this said. Because Jesus always just described, he'd just say, I'm a human, just like you. The Son of Man, he would always say. Which in Hebrew is basically saying the Son of Adam. That's the word Adam, means man. So, I'm just a, basically that's the way you say, I'm a human, like you. We're, we're brothers in this process. And the disciples are still shaken up by this whole commanding the waters thing. And now here's these demons calling Jesus the Son of God. Who, who is this man that we've been following? That the wind and the waves obey Him and the demons call Him the Son of God? The demons know, and not only do they recognize Him, they're worried about what He was there to do. Because they knew that their time was going to come eventually. They said, there's, there, we know there's a time coming for us. And what has Jesus been preaching as He's been going around the area telling he says the kingdom of God has arrived. So the demons know who Jesus is. They know what he can do to them. And they're asking, is our time already up? And so they're worried. And so this is our first detailed description of Jesus interacting 
with demon possession in Matthew. He said that he's cast out demons, but now we're getting into detail, like actual conversation. And it, it, it probably sounds weird to us, I think, you know, when we talk about demons and people, because we're not used to, to that in our lives. I don't know if any of you guys ever had that kind of an encounter, but I, I have never been in a situation where I recognized or, or dealt with a demon in a person. I mean, maybe there was, and there, I have no idea, but, but that's not what we do in the modern world because we're, we're all about you know, science and facts and figures. And, but then again, maybe that's on purpose. Maybe, you know, if you think about it, these two guys could have seemed like normal people in, in regular life. I mean, crazy people, obviously. I would guess they were probably like schizophrenics living in the, in the tombs and, and acting weird and being violent all the time. I'm not saying that you know, anybody with a mental illness is demon-possessed, but I would assume if you've got that kind of problem that you're not going to act normal, that there's something wrong. And that's the way it always seemed when Jesus encountered a demon-possessed person. There was something wrong with them. They had seizures or they had problems and they were cursing and they were violent and that kind of stuff. So they would seem like a crazy person to us. But how would you and I know today if we were confronting an evil being who had had thousands of years now to kind of practice the art of learning how to quietly influence its prey. I don't know. I mean, maybe we've come across people on the, you know, on the street who are acting weird or violent or crazy. Maybe they're I don't know. Just a thought. But the Bible makes it clear that there is real, personal, powerful evil in the world. And it can influence people. And, and somehow it can possess them and... and take over and it's beyond that of ordinary people making wicked choices there are plenty of us who make bad decisions evil choices when we know we shouldn't and it has nothing to do with demons or or satan or whatever we just decide that we're going to do it our way instead of god's way so people can be evil but there's also this evil force and a, a you know more powerful force that is represented by in satan and the demons that they have, they have influence in the world. They have power to be able to do things. And, and they use it to try to, to hurt God and to destroy us and, and as, as His enemies. But evil can't hide from Jesus. Jesus can recognize it wherever He goes and know who's, who's actually in control. And He's kind of like the, you know, I see Him as the professional inspector who comes to your house to check things out and they can see the rot or they can see the foundation issues and stuff that you would never see. And they point it out. Yeah, right here. You see this crack or right here. You see these markings. So Jesus comes in and He knows. You can't hide it from Him. He sees it right away. And the demons know it. And, and it's kind of like, you know, if you've ever lifted up a rock and all the bugs go scurrying and the spiders and the things, they all, you know, they're exposed to the sunlight and so they all take off. I think that's kind of like Jesus comes in and He's this light that comes in exposing the, the demons. And so now these evil beings are brought out into the light. And verse 31 says, there was a large herd of pigs that was feeding some distance from them. And then the demons begged Him, if you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And I don't know if this means that, that demons always prefer some sort of physical creature as a host. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but it, it, it seems like that, I mean, that's what they want here for sure. I also don't know why Jesus allows them to have any sort of say in where they might wind up. 
and what he's going to do with them. But I tend to think that it's, it's because it's just not the appointed time for him to wipe out evil yet. He says, you know, no one knows the day or the hour. He is coming to deal with evil, but that's not what he's come to, to do yet. He's, he's fighting evil, but he's not come to you know, cast the demons away completely yet. So, but Matthew doesn't fill in those details. He kind of leaves these stories with a lot of open ends. We do know in the context of Scripture that God cares about all creatures, including pigs. And you know, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God being aware of it. So it's not like God hates pigs or anything. But So Jesus is not going to, to needlessly punish a bunch. Yes, they're ceremonially unclean to the Jews, but it's not like Jesus hates them. It's they're, they're life, living creatures, and he, he's not, he doesn't want to punish pigs. But whatever the case is, Jesus is clearly more concerned about these two human beings who are being troubled by these demons than he is with animals. And so he says one word. He says, go to the, the demons in verse 32. And he said, go. So they came out and they went into the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep slope and into the lake and drowned in the water. Now, if you think this is weird, then you're normal. Because this is weird. This is the, there's the picture of a herd of pigs drowning in the water because these demons have gone into them. It's disturbing. It's gruesome. It's, it's not something you like to think about. And why would the demons ask to go in the pigs if they were just going to kill them all? Like, why bother going through the trouble? Maybe the demons wanted to just do as much damage as they could, as they thought they could get away with, cause as much trouble. Kind of like an angry child. when You go to your room, the child storms off and then slams the door. And they're just trying to, you know, they, they want to display their anger and show their, you know, their, how they're upset. And so the demons, they just, let's kill these pigs. And, and display how nasty they are. And, and it's a crazy story. And I think Matthew wants us to feel that. He wants us to feel the, the, we're the creeped out by this idea of, this, of Jesus is confronting real evil here. And, these, and, this, and, and because real evil, all these animals, these poor animals die because of evil, because of these demons this enemy of god and that's what evil does it steals and it kills and it destroys it's not normal it's not the way that god designed the world that's not the way god wants us to be and so when they destroy it's that's it's it's supposed to creep us out and i think matthew does a, tells us about this story on purpose and then verse 34 it says the herdsmen ran off and went into town which that's, that makes sense. If your livestock were all killed because you saw this battle between this, this powerful guy and, and these evil demons and then all your pigs drowned themselves, you would run away too probably. But uh, it says that the herdsmen ran off and went into town and told everything that had happened to the demon-possessed men. And then the entire town came out to meet Jesus and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So... Uh, we're assuming these people aren't Jewish because they're, they're pig farmers. So they're, they're Gentiles. And if you were confronted with the same situation, here's the, I mean, I think any of us, if we saw demon-possessed people and, and we realized that's what they were, and here's somebody who comes and casts the demons out of them, and the pigs go crazy and they kill themselves, and the men now are normal and calm and peaceful again, 
but all your livestock has just been killed. I mean, how much money did that represent to the to the farmers? That's that's their that's how they live. That's how they feed themselves. They 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 have pig meat and they probably sell that in the market in order to buy whatever else they need. And Jesus has just wrecked their their family's economy, their town the economy. And so you'd very courteously ask this man who obviously has power, please go away from us. Please leave. You've destroyed this. We, we don't want you around. And so we've got these two accounts of very strange happenings. This calming of the sea and then the pigs and the demons. And they serve to reveal to us who Jesus really is. He isn't just some guy who can do miracles. He isn't just a prophet. He's the source of miracles. Somehow contained in this human being is the fearsome God who parted this, the, the waters of the Red Sea and made walls for the, the Hebrews to escape on and then drowned the Egyptian army to save his people. How does that work? Who is this man who can do this? How can God be a human being? And We saw how the disciples were awed by this, that the calming of the sea and here with the pigs, we see more people, different people, who, who they don't even want this kind of power around them. They say, "We please go away. We don't want you in our lives. We want you gone. You're, you're, it, it's fearsome, this idea of, of God and a human being. I mean, God is a powerful force. And, and Jesus has come with awesome power. And the reason he's come is to confront evil. And that's what he's doing. Not only with our, within our own hearts as people, but also these, these behind-the-scenes spiritual demonic forces uh, where the enemy works to wreck God's kingdom and to do as much damage as they can. But Matthew has also revealed earlier in this chapter who this, you know, what kind of God we have. And that this same powerful, fearsome Jesus is full of compassion and kindness and humility and he's he's teaching us through his witness Matthew is teaching us through his witness of Jesus who God is both wonderful and awesome and Jesus works to usher in the kingdom and and fight evil and it's it's going to be uncomfortable and even scary at times which is the the disciples saw that that Sometimes you're going to see this wonderful things happening and people being healed and, and learn these amazing lessons from this wise teacher. And other times it's going to be, you're going to be scared out of your gourd. And, and those of you who have read ahead to the end of Matthew know that Jesus' confrontation with evil gets even stranger and more weird and more upsetting, I think. And it's probably none of you have watched the Matrix trilogy, but the, 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 Jesus goes and he allows the enemy to kill him. But that's his way of overcoming the enemy and finding victory. It's a weird, weird story. But Jesus then tells us to take up our cross. You know, he comes back from the dead and he tells, you, he tells us, his, his followers, now you take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, let it go. Lose it. That's how you save your life. Just what He did. And, it, and that's how we build up the kingdom. 
We stand up against evil just like Jesus did, but we do it through sacrifice and through being humble and being holy and making holy choices and and choosing to do the right thing. And, And because of that, there will be some who choose to revere and love Jesus because of what He does. There will be some who say, thank you, Jesus, for what You've done. And, and, and they love Him and they want to be around Him and they want to follow Him and listen to Him and, and be like Him. And then there will be some who just want Him to go away. Leave us alone. We don't want You around. And we see both cases, right? And it's the same for us. When we go around and we tell people about Jesus and we, sh- and we live the life He's called us to, there will be some that are grateful. Thank you for sharing that with me. Some that just want you to go away and not talk to them anymore. The question for us today is what do you choose? Do you choose to love and revere Jesus? Will you follow Him? Even though it's not always comfortable and sometimes it's kind of scary and hard and difficult. Sometimes you see these wonderful things happening and you can see miracles in people's lives and other times you don't know what's going on and the storms are coming. Do you want to follow Him? Or would you rather He just left you alone and stayed far away because He makes your life uncomfortable? That's our choice. It's just like all the other people. Choose this day whom you will serve. Whose side are you on? Jesus or the evil that He fights against? Because we're one or the other. So that's the question that we're left with. And Matthew uses these stories to point out just who this Jesus is. We've learned, we know His character and, and all the kindness that He's shown but now we understand this is really God in the flesh and He has power and He's awesome and He's fearsome and He's mighty. And, and He reveals who God is to us through the way He lives. Do you want to follow Him or you just want Him to stay away? It's up to you to decide. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much that You are willing to sacrifice Yourself so that we might be saved. And we are grateful that you are an awesome and mighty and powerful God. And you, you can command whatever you want. And you can command the wind and the waves. And, and even though you can, sometimes you allow us to go through those storms. And, and that you do things to teach us and to grow our character. Or just to help us to understand that we can trust you even when things are hard. And Lord, I pray that when things are hard for us and it's hard to understand and and we ask the question why me god that we would also trust that we wouldn't be of little faith that we would trust that you're with us through the storm and you're going to continue to be with us and you will not give up on us or forsake us so lord i pray that you would help us all not to give up on you or forsake you that we would follow you and stick by your side through thick and thin and that you would continue to reveal to us who you are in your name we pray jesus amen